Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 46th edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises. We would like to take this time to thank our sponsor, Digital War Room, one of the leading platforms for e-discovery. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is Call Baby Call, Modern Trends in Data Collection and Analysis. We're delighted to welcome Aaron Lawler, who has spent the past decade addressing his clients' e-discovery needs, first as an attorney at an AmLaw 100 firm, then as co-founder of a boutique consulting and managed document review company. His company was acquired by United Lex in 2013, and in his current role, he partners with in-house and outside counsel to implement value-driven e-discovery solutions. Thanks for joining with us today, Aaron. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, I don't think there's much question, Aaron, that lawyers struggle mightily with e-discovery. Why do you think they have such a hard time with it? You know, Sharon, there, there's a lot of reasons that lawyers find this part of their practice to be challenging. Uh, as a baseline, it's important to recognize uh, that despite all the attention that e-discoveries received over the past decade or so, you know, it's still a relatively new part of the litigation process. And the case law on the subject continues to evolve. Compared with laws governing contracts or torts or real property that go back hundreds of years, you know, e-discovery is really still just the new kid on the block. I think because of this newness, a big challenge lies in the fact that, you know, most of today's practitioners were never exposed to e-discovery during their studies at law school or those formative years after they passed the bar. You know, another challenge is the number of languages or disciplines that are involved in understanding e-discovery issues. You know, beyond just understanding the business issues of the case and translating complex legal jargon to non-lawyers, an attorney's got to be able to communicate in, in a variety of technical languages. So, you know, there's a different vernacular when you're talking about information governance versus data collection versus data analysis or managed document review. As a, a personal challenge, uh, the community of e-discovery providers, and I'm part of this community, sometimes muddies the waters. So anyone who's attended a legal technology conference, I think, can attest to the sort of dizzying array of products and services and various pricing models that exist. And so for somebody who's new to e-discovery, you know, this person often leaves these events maybe feeling a little bit overwhelmed by the options and possibly even disappointed in, in how much, you know, he or she might not think they know. Um, you know, so I've painted this picture of the various e-discovery challenges that exist, but, but they're absolutely as light at the end of the tunnel. And I think if a practitioner is willing to, to dig in and find true partners in the space, it can be a real competitive advantage for both him uh, and his clients. You know, Aaron, I, I think a lot of the, the listeners here, some of them anyway, they're not really sure what ESI is, and they probably think it's a new you know TV crime show or something like that. But in order to understand that and get into that, where's, where's the best place to start? You know, I think for starters, you know, every litigator should should review or, or hopefully re-review, you know, the pertinent federal or state rules uh, and comments that govern e-discovery. So, you know, John, as you know, 
the changes to the federal rules in this area went into effect back in December of, of 06. And mm-hmm. among other things, you know, these changes included a very broad definition of what's discoverable. Basically, any type of information that can be stored electronically. So that's your ESI, right? Electronically stored information. Uh, the rules also created a framework, you know, whereby parties can address e-discovery issues uh, early and often. Now, whether attorneys actually do this is, is a very different story, um, but that was at least part of, of the intent behind the rules. Uh, I also think attorneys need to take a look at Federal Rule of Evidence 502. So this rule addresses the inadvertent disclosure of privileged information, and it provides some steps that counsel can take to help ensure that accidentally disclosed privileged information doesn't end up resulting in some sort of full-fledged waiver. Um, there's also a lot of practical guidance that's available for free on the web. So the Sedona Conferencing's website is a great resource uh, with a lot of in-depth articles on, on proportionality and discovery and best practices for searching and retrieving data uh, and large data populations. Another must-read, Sedona's uh, Cooperation Proclamation, um, which in addition to being a tongue twister, uh, is really meant to sort of empower <laughs> opposing counsel, right, to work together. You know, a second online resource is the uh, Electronic Discovery Reference Model and their website, uh, edrm.net, and it includes a very helpful visual framework for understanding the basics of the process. So I think these resources are, are a really good place for people to start. Well, I, I agree with you about the resources, and especially I love all of the documents uh, for Sedona, and I do love the graphic for EDRM, and I, I think I'm referencing that with my next question. So before we actually focus on trends in data collection and analysis, um, can you actually frame or explain kind of the infographic, uh, explain how these areas fit within the overall e-discovery process? Sure. Whether we're talking about paper or electronically stored information, the discovery process really begins the moment a party is either put on notice or, or reasonably anticipates litigation. So th- there are steps, of course, that, that parties can take and companies can take long before, um, you know, this time to be better prepared. And, and I would certainly recommend that companies do this prep work. But the rubber hits the road once the party hears litigation sort of knocking at its door. And once this happens, you know, clients have a duty to preserve information, you know, that's relevant to the matter. So for paper documents, this means making sure these files aren't sent to the shredder. For ESI, it's making sure that information is not subject to an automatic deletion system or otherwise some type of alteration. Uh, And as early as possible, counsel needs to get involved. So this means issuing a litigation hold, making sure that that hold is communicated to the folks that need to know about it, and then making sure that it's actually followed. From here... Efforts need to be taken to to more specifically identify where this relevant information exists. So in a purely paper-based world, it was possible for someone to to roughly know where his or her files were for a particular matter. There was less information that was getting created, and and it was typically better organized. With the explosion of electronic data, things have really changed. So people spew out emails all day long, CCing everyone and their brother, and all of this work's commingled in their inboxes with thousands of other unrelated items. And, and we take it for granted, but typically by searching on the Internet or making a to-do list on our phones, we're creating you know, information that, that may be relevant to the litigation matter. So at this identification stage, you know, it's not just about having an admin go out and collect all key, you know, Peter Gibbons' TPS reports from the file cabinet. 
council's got to get involved, and they need to document how the key players in the matter create and store information. You know, whether that's in paper format in their office, within the company or third-party email server, you know, on their computer hard drive, the network share drive, the financial database, in the cloud, you know, or so on and so forth. But once that information is identified, you know, it's then going to be collected, analyzed, and culled, and that's something that we're going to address in a little bit more detail shortly. Following that analysis and culling process, the remainder of the data is going to get processed and uploaded into a document review platform. And from there, you know, some number of lawyers are going to spend time going over those documents and, and helping to further refine whether or not they're responsive, whether they contain some sort of confidential information, uh, and whether they might contain some type of attorney-client or work product information. Uh, at the end, you know, the documents that are responsive and non-privileged uh, are then produced to opposing counsel. Hmm. So the emails about what's on the pizza for lunch is n- typically not discoverable? Is that <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> I, I know there's, you know there's a lot of that fluff and stuff that's there, too. But let's, let's talk a little bit about the, where all the stuff begins, Aaron, and, and that's at the, the data collection place. Uh, what's involved and what does is a, what is a typical practitioner need, need to know when we're, we're starting from that, that point? Well, at its core, you know, data collection involves copying information, and then transferring it into another system so that it can be further analyzed and, and culled down. Generally speaking, uh, there's two basic approaches to data collection. And the first is going to be referred to as, as targeted collection. And as that name suggests, the targeted collection has a more limited scope and is going to focus on data locations where relevant information is most likely to exist. So if we're talking about a typical user's laptop, uh, a targeted approach, might involve copying, you know, that person's email files, certain discrete hard drive folders, and maybe some documents that are stored on a network share drive. The big benefit of, of this targeted approach is that it limits the total volume of data that's collected, and this may help control costs. Uh, there are, however, a number of, of cons to this method as well. Uh, the first is that, you know, what's deemed to be important to a case or relevant to a case at the outset may change over time. And if that data wasn't collected during the first go-around, it, it may require going back to that same custodian to collect again. Um, there's also a risk mm-hmm. that you know, a custodian might not remember where he or she stored all of their relevant files. Uh, in, a, in a slightly more you know, malign scenario, you may have a custodian who's just not being honest with counsel or is trying to hide the ball and isn't sharing certain data locations. So that's the first style of collection, targeted collection. Uh, The second approach uh, is called a full collection. So going back to that laptop example, you know, once a key player is identified, instead of copying just discrete groups of file types and folders, you know, we're going to go ahead and copy that person's entire hard drive. That's going to include all their email files and document file folders, uh, their Internet browsing history, so on and so forth. Um, and we're also going to end up pulling in a fair amount of, of system-related files that are going to need to get filtered out uh, at a, a later point in time. So the big pro of this approach, uh, and, and there, are, there are a number of them, but it, they really the pros of this approach negate a lot of the cons uh, associated with targeted collection. Right? So there's less risk of documents um, being missed or, or having to go back and collect from the same person twice. Um, traditionally speaking, the problem with this approach uh, was a large amount of unnecessary data that was collected 
and the cost of filtering that out later in the process. Well, if I were to be asked, how much is data collection changing? My answer would be a lot. Do you agree with that? And, and can you talk about how it is changing? I absolutely agree. And I think there are two drivers of that change. I think the first is that, you know, the technology keeps getting better and better. So in the past, um, you know, on a typical collection, it would involve an expert um, either going to a client's location uh, where laptops and servers and, and other data storage devices are located or having those devices physically shipped to be copied uh, and sent back. Targeted collections also happened a lot more frequently due to the high cost of culling out system and, and other junk files. You know, today, more and more collections are being handled remotely, and that's, that's almost the standard at this point. You know, that involves the collection vendor shipping a customized hard drive directly to a custodian or someone in that company's IT department. And the drives are plugged in uh, to the requisite data source and then remotely operated. And then once the work's done, the drives are shipped back to the vendor. As you can imagine, this type of collection is a lot more efficient because you don't have a travel cost built in. Uh, and you also have the ability for one remotely located technician to be collecting from multiple devices all at once. The second driver of change has been litigants sort of evolving risk preference. So if you look at cases over the past six years or so, when parties have been cited for, for e-discovery violations and the court issued monetary sanctions, what you're going to see is that 60% of the time, uh, these sanctions were being uh, levied because of inadequate data preservation or data collection. So at the same time this case law has been developing, the cost involved with calling out non-responsive data has substantially gone down. And, and this has resulted in more and more counsel preferring to conduct a full collection of data instead of targeted collections. From my perspective, I think this trend is going to continue uh, because more and more providers are willing to throw out system files and other unresponsive file types at, at either low or no cost. Hmm. Well, that's good news. For, cause, and the clients, I'm sure, love that when the, when the cost is going down. Let, let's shift gears a little bit, Aaron, and talk about data analysis. And I know when I use that term, it's very different than what some other folks, when they use it, and, and the, the definitions kind of all over the place can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. What, what does that that data analysis term mean to you uh, for the purposes of what we're talking about here? Yeah, I'm really talking about the ways that both technology and process uh, can be leveraged to focus counsel's attention on the information that's at the core of his or her case. You know, part of this involves the ability to call out non-responsive information early in the process and making sure it doesn't move downstream into the review phase. Um, there are a lot of data analysis tools that also can be used once documents are uploaded into a review platform, but that's not really the focus for today. You know, I, I think with that said, though, I do want to make one important distinction between data culling that occurs uh, before versus after documents make it into you know, the review phase. You know, the fact is, the earlier that junk data can be called out, the better opportunity there, there's going to be to control costs. So there's research that suggests that a client can save up to $2 per document that's called out prior to it being loaded into some sort of review platform. And that number's big, but it makes sense because a huge amount of the costs in e-discovery are incurred towards the end of the process, right, when attorneys are spending time manually reviewing documents. And, and I don't want to be, you know, misconstrued. Uh, this manual review process uh, is absolutely critical, but 
it benefits everyone at this time spent looking at documents relevant to the case and, and folks aren't coding, you know, fantasy football emails that got uh, passed through <laughs> accidentally. Especially if it's a losing team. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break with a few words from the Legal Talk Network and our sponsor, the Digital War Room platform for e-discovery. Don't be caught unprepared for e-discovery. Digital War Room e-discovery software allows you to search, review, mark, and produce responsive email and documents. Powerful enough for your biggest cases, but easy enough for first-time e-discovery attorneys. Geeks need not apply. Digital War Room has a solution for every client, every case, and every budget. Visit www.digitalwarroom.com for a free trial and see how easy e-discovery can be. Make your next case your best case with Digital War Room. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today our topic is Cull Baby Cull, Modern Trends in Data Collection and Analysis. Our guest is Aaron Lawler, a Senior Director of Global Legal Solutions at United Lex Corporation. Aaron, bring us up to speed here. What are some of the recent trends in e-discovery data analysis? You know, Sharon, there's been a lot of innovation in this area, and uh, at least some of it continues to center around helping litigants to, to visualize large amounts of data. So say, for instance, uh, you're trying to confirm that a data collection was complete for a particular custodian. You know, how do we know we got everything? Well, one method that can be used is to graph you know, the total number of emails that a custodian sent or received over a monthly basis, and then to do that over a particular number of years. And if there's a huge drop-off in a particular month or two, you know, this may indicate that not all the data was collected. Uh, it's even more likely if this type of dip occurs across several custodians. As you can imagine, this sort of data aggregation analysis is nearly impossible if you're just looking um, without being able to see the data, right, if you were just looking at the emails individually. You know, similar advances uh, have taken place with what I call communication mapping. So this is an interactive visual representation of how different custodians talk to one another. Um, there's literally hundreds of ways that these maps are, are used in both litigation and for government investigations, uh, among other sort of adversarial proceedings. But one of the most significant of these ways is helping ensure that, that data was collected from all of the primary custodians. So, say, for example, you're looking at a communication map, and you see that there's three central players in the matter, and they're all sending and receiving lots of emails with this fourth person. And, oh, by the way, you didn't collect any data from that first fourth person. If nothing else, that's going to be a red flag to you to, to follow up with counsel and say, well, do we need to go back to this fourth person? Who are they? You know, what are they talking to this person about? There's also another side to the same coin. So say you're working on a case and you get a huge data dump from opposing counsel. You know, you may want to visualize their data and see, if anything, you know, what are they possibly trying to hide in this huge data dump? And where might there be gaps uh, in, in this particular production set? Hmm. So Aaron, what's your company, United Lex? What are they doing to help clients in this area? You know, for today's call, I really want to talk about one of our most innovative offerings, and it's called Questio. So the name's derived from Latin, and it means seeking truth. Questio represents a seven-figure investment by United Lex, and, and its purpose is to help clients who are struggling with the ever-increasing amounts of, of data 
out there and increasing discovery calls. In terms of its place in the overall process, you know, Questia is used right after data collection and just before data is processed and uploaded into a review platform. So that's the backstory. But in terms of what it's all about, you know, Questio is this consultant-led technology uh, that's designed to do three things. The first is enhanced legal intelligence. The second is mitigate risk. And, and the third is substantially reduce e-discovery costs. And I want to take each of these in turn, uh, starting with, with legal intelligence. So the Questio process has been tested and refined over several hundred matters. And it's really been proven to help identify the needles in the haystack, you know, well before any formal document review occurs. So the process begins with a detailed interview with case counsel and the end client. And this really helps our consultants hone in on the types of information that may be important to particular claims or defenses in the matter. So if you're talking about a fraud suit, you know, Questio can help really focus in on communications between particular custodians in a particular time period on a particular subject matter. It can also really help identify gaps in, in counsel's theory of the case. So if documents aren't showing up that everyone expected to be there, counsel can make that decision um, and reevaluate whether they need to change their approach. Because this process is happening really early on, it also helps counsel to, to really refine their big-picture understanding of the case and stay on track. You know, Questia is also a really powerful risk mitigator. So one of its primary functions is to help define and validate search terms um, that are going to be used to call a data set down. You know, in the past, counsel would oftentimes agree to search terms in a complete vacuum without actually having seen any of the data that's getting pulled in, or just as important, they're not seeing what's getting left out. Uh, they'd simply get sort of a search term hit list to determine if the overall volume of the data was something, you know, them and their client could live with, and then they'd end up promoting all of that data into the review phase. And the output of this traditional process really came to fall pretty much within that 80-20 rule, but, but not in a good way. So on average, about 80% of the documents that were getting reviewed by attorneys, um, you know, it was junk, and it, and it was really a waste of time. So with Questio, you know, once that baseline set of search terms are, are developed, you know, those terms are then run against the data set, and our consultants work to identify how are these terms being how are they hitting in an over-inclusive way, in an under-inclusive way, and, and how can they be modified to, to make the overall search more precise? Uh, you know, armed with this information, it's a lot easier for counsel to negotiate with the folks on the other side, you know, over which terms are going to be used and why. So I could go on for a fair amount of time on, on these risk mitigation capabilities that are built into Questio. But when it comes down to it, and when I talk to most attorneys, what they want to hear about is how can this you know, help save my client's money. <laughs> and, and that aspect of Questio is pretty yep. straightforward, right? The more junk you call out early in the case, the less time counsel and the team are wasting reviewing it downstream. And there's quality enhancements that flow from this. So if a data set's been reduced by upwards of 90%, and this is absolutely achievable in Questio, uh, you can imagine how much more impactful a document review is actually going to be. You know, that's a high-level overview of Questio, but there, there's one other differentiator that I want to mention. So if you were to ask me, you know, Aaron, what's Questio's secret sauce? The amazing thing is I don't have to tell you really anything about the technology. Obviously, that's important. But what's truly special is, is this playbook of best practices um, that our consultants are leveraging every day across multiple matters. Questio is not this dumb box that we hand off to a client and say, look, this is amazing. 
Now you go figure out how to use it, right? That's not our model. Uh, Questio consultants are working with counsel to understand the case and the data. And once that understanding is in place, it's these same consultants who are operating the technology. And this is a really great thing because for most attorneys I know, the last thing they want to do is spend time learning some new software program in the midst of building their case. Well, that was quite a description, and I'm sure a lot of people who listen to the podcast will be interested in looking into Questio, and I do like the Latin derivation. Aaron, looking at the state of the art, every time I kind of feel like I've come up to the state of the art, the state of the art changes. Um, that's, I guess, one of the constants of the EDD world. What advances do you see coming down the pipeline over the next few years? You know, I think in the near term, the real change is going to come um, from a more pervasive use of the technology that's already within the marketplace. So what do I mean by that? I think currently, you know, there's a lot of really powerful technology that's only getting used on the largest and, and most sophisticated matters. I think the cost for this technology is really going to continue to come down, and you're going to see it more regularly used on, on medium and smaller cases. Now, I also think there's a lot of room in the space for process improvements. So some of this is going to come down from in-house counsel who are more and more requiring their outside counsel to follow a standardized and approved approach for e-discovery. You're also seeing these process improvements from external partnerships. So, you know, there are a lot of law firms who are partnering with technology companies and working together to standardize those processes, again, across multiple clients and multiple matters. On the technology front, I think it's a given that, that search and machine learning are going to continue to get better and better. You know, I was recently listening uh, to a conversation on NPR that was talking about sentiment analysis and these algorithms that are being designed to understand the emotional and historical and social context of written communication. And what this means, you know, is that in the not-so-distant future, you're probably going to be able to search through someone's emails, for instance, using a sarcasm or a humor filter. And I honestly, I think that's pretty amazing and has a lot of uh, potential for, for practical use. You know, lastly, on the legal front, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that coming down the pike are several new sets of proposed federal rule changes that are going to impact e-discovery. So these changes are still being debated and fine-tuned, but, but at a high level, their aim is, is to provide more teeth to the concept of proportionality and more guidance on the scope and timing of parties' preservation obligations, um, which has been an area of a lot of frustration uh, for, for counsel to this point. You know, based on the current schedule, these changes are looking to, to be adopted and to go in effect sometime in December of, of 2015. Well, that's great. So, Aaron, one last shot. What, what's your closing advice that you'd give to busy practitioners that are trying to solve these, these electronic discovery and EDD issues for their clients? There's three things uh, that I want to close with. You know, the first is, look, if you're a litigator and you haven't been involved in at least some minimal amount of e-discovery at this point, I think you need to ask yourself why. You know, there's so much information that's communicated at this point that's purely electronic. And frankly, ESI can be a lot more robust and useful than, than paper. So you may be doing a disservice to your clients if you haven't at least spoken to someone to find out what it is you may be missing. You know, second, I think it's always important to keep the end game in mind. So at every step in the process, you know, an attorney needs to consider what type of information he or she plans to present at trial. And I think with that frame of reference, it really helps to drive how that person's going to, to get there 
in both a fast and an affordable way. Um, you know, lastly, I want to close by talking again about sort of that light at the end of the tunnel. For each of the e-discovery horror stories that you might read about in the case law or the you know, legal news, I think there are literally dozens of untold stories of opposing counsel cooperating with one another to address these issues. I think there's also an equal number of stories demonstrating that, that properly used technology can lead you know, to facts being discovered more quickly and, and cases being settled earlier in the process. I mean, ultimately, things continue to get better and faster and more efficient, but these results are only going to be available to those who are willing to put in that front-end effort and, and be proactive. Well, I'm having some difficulty summoning the image of lawyers cooperating, but I have heard tell that it does take place. <laughs> Aaron, you did a great job with a lot of practical tips and, and a good overview, a look into the future. I know everybody will have enjoyed uh, listening to this podcast, so we, we sure want to thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Well, thank you. I, I had a really great time and enjoyed it. Well, that does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on iTunes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please review us on iTunes. And you can find out more about Sensei's digital forensics technology and security services at www.senseient.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.